You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around we are going to end our second year in The Nom with issue number 24, an issue that details events that help mark the turning point of the war. Our selection this time around comes from the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, and its Chain of Fools, the number two song in the country at the end of January of 1968, which is when this issue takes place. And really... Like I said, with respect, any excuse to pay, play Aretha Franklin is always a good one. <laughs> the Beginning of the End was released on July 26, 1988, had a November 1988 cover date, and the credits are as follows. Doug Murray, writer, Wayne Van Zant, penciler, Jeff Isherwood, inker, Phil Felix, letters and colors, Pat Redding, managing editor, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. It is January 31st, 1968, the beginning of Tet, the most important holiday on the Vietnamese calendar, a holiday on which both sides have declared a truce, a truce which is about to be broken. We see a city scene, most likely the streets of Saigon, and a guy rides around on a Vespa while a few other guys sit in the back of a van holding guns. The guy on the Vespa, whose name we learn is Teo, pulls up to a house and friends of his are inside complaining that their guns have been eaten away by termites. He tells his friends that their comrades are on their way and one of them says, good, then they have to be off as well. While Teo and the others prepare for whatever they're doing, the United States Embassy is under attack by the guys who were in the van on page one. They take out a number of people on the front lawn and head toward the building hoping to to take the United States ambassador hostage. Meanwhile, at the 23rd's compound in Chu Chi, Daniel and Phillips are in a bunker which is being shelled. Daniel says that he thought there was a truce, and Phillips replies, yeah, it lasted about three hours. Roland then shows up to give the guys a new mission. They are to accompany Captain Tuong on a mission to take back the embassy, which had been captured in the previous scene. They mount up and head to the city, where the embassy is being guarded by the VC, and the men of the 23rd realize they're going to have to fight their way in. They begin doing so, noticing that they're being filmed by a television crew, much to their chagrin, and as they fight, one of the employees of the embassy gets to an open window and asks the guys to throw them a weapon. Phillips does so, throwing him a pistol, and the man takes out one of the VC. That seems to be all of them, and the operation is over quickly, although there is some consternation about the fact that there were VC obviously on the inside, and that's how they took the embassy so easily. The media continues to shoot footage, even as the 23rd gets a call to go somewhere else. At that very moment in the Saigon radio station, Tio and his friends are fighting with troops and with one another. The mission has gone all sorts of foobar, and now they are being shot at by American troops. The guys of the 23rd are outside and want to know why they took the radio station but didn't transmit anything. The answer to that comes from a couple of the Vietnamese troops they're fighting alongside. When the attacks began, the army cut off the transmission, so even if they wanted to, the VC wanted to broadcast something, they couldn't. 
Inside, Teo and his friends continue to be under siege and continue to die. One of them suggests blowing everything up, which makes sense if you want to take out a few other people while you're at it, and Teo's friend says that Teo needs to try to slip out so he's a survivor and can tell the tale of what happened. Teo slips out. The building blows up, all in range of a news camera. As the smoke clears, most of the VC are dead except the one they saw get away, which was Teo. The 23rd heads into the city and tries to track him. As they're doing so, they come across two national police officers and General Lone, who's in he- who is the head of the national police. They're investigating the murder of one of Lone's men and that man's family members. It is, as one of the policemen comments, a common sight. A moment later, a young man is brought out into the street. General Lone walks up to him and shoots him in the temple at point-blank range with the news camera rolling the entire time. And we have a splash panel on page 28 with the execution as reflected in the lens of the camera. The Americans look a little stunned at what they just saw. Phillips comments about how it will be front-page news the next day, and then they are then sent back to their base. Meanwhile, around the corner, Teo seethes. Back at the 23rd that evening, the guys comment about how cool and calm General Westmoreland seems to be on television, even though there's still fighting going on up, up at Huey. Daniel comments that Aesop and Rubino are up that way, and Phillips nonchalantly replies, Yeah, what about that? There are things that work about this issue, and there are things that don't. Uh, first, the art's excellent. Van Sant and I sure would get both the large-scale fight scenes and the more intimate confrontation scenes down very well, and they do a great job with the emotions of the characters' faces. For the story, the actual story of the embassy under siege, uh, the terrorists getting out pretty, taken pretty quickly, is uh, done pretty well. Murray gives us enough of the men who are taking over the embassy to give us an idea of what the Viet Cong truly like. They are, as he characterizes them, young revolutionaries who will die for their cause. And I think that we as readers need to be reminded of the ideals, or at least the devotion to those ideals, that American troops were up against during the war. He doesn't seem to make you want to agree or disagree with the VC's fight one way or another. But he wants to point out that these people are doing what they consider their patriotic duty to their homeland. Plus, Murray points out how many of the men in the VC weren't necessarily trained soldiers, but were ordinary citizens who eventually took up the cause, no matter how poor they were. The termites eating through the barrels of the guns and Tio's group taking the radio station going terribly wrong were nice touches, because many of the people who were part of the Viet Cong were basically that. Poor people who didn't have much to their name, and once they were part of this revolutionary force, probably didn't have much of anything else either. Phillips is significantly more hardened than Marx was, although when they witness Lone executing a criminal, even he seems a bit surprised. But at the same time, getting the 23rd on this mission during the Tet Offensive and having them come across this specific execution that was carried out by Lone feels like Murray is shoehorning his main characters into the events ideas he wants to write about or cover. Yes, it's definitely a significant time in the war, and what they see is unforgettable, but this is a specific moment that's kind of an isolated incident. It's not like he's dropping them into the middle of the Battle of the Somme or D-Day, where thousands of men took part. This is one execution on a city street in Saigon that the 23rd just happens to stumble across. And it seems a little contrived that they happen to be there. And furthermore, I'm trying to figure out what the point of showing it was. Was it to show how badly the lines were blurring between those who we were supporting and those we were fighting? After all, these were South Vietnamese police who were committing this execution. And while no army or police force is perfect, the average American likes to think that we're fighting or at least supporting the quote-unquote good guys. 
So an image like this is jarring, and that's got to be why Phillips seems so annoyed when he sees the picture being taken and the footage being filmed. H. Bruce Franklin, uh, a historian who has done extensive work regarding the Vietnam War, has a different take on this scene in his essay. From Realism to Virtual Reality, Images of America's Wars, which was first published in the Georgia Review in the spring of 1994, but which I found in an essay anthology in my English department's book uh, room from by completely random chance about a year ago when I was searching for essays and short stories to teach my students. So there you go. Serendipity, the name is Book Room. The essay itself is mainly about the history of documenting war and how the need to depict the grisly reality of war always seems to be in conflict with the glorification of war that we often see in our media through such things as movies. This issue of the NAM, according to Franklin, falls into the latter category. And here's what he says. I'm going to take bits and pieces of it, starting with, he, he notes that Vietnam was the first war to be televised directly into tens of millions of homes, and he says, television's glimpses of the war reality were so horrendous and so influential that these images have been scapegoated as one of the main causes of the United States' defeat. Indeed, the Civil War still, still photographs of corpses seem innocuous when compared to the Vietnam War's on-screen killings, as well as live-action footage of the bulldozing of human carcasses into mass graves, the name-palming of children, and the ravaging of villages by American soldiers. He eventually comes around to the Nam, saying one of the most influential and enduring single images from the Vietnam War, certainly the most contested, exploded into the consciousness of millions of Americans in February 1968 when they actually watched within the comfort of their own homes as the chief of the Saigon National Police executed a manacled NLF, which stands for National Liberation Front, opponents of the, South, of the government of South Vietnam who were allied with the North Vietnamese, prisoner. In a perfectly framed sequence, the notorious General Nguyen Ngoc Lone unholsters a snub-nosed revolver and places its muzzle to the prisoner's right temple. The prisoner's head jolts a sudden spurt of blood gushes straight out of his right temple, and he collapses in death. The next morning, newspaper readers were confronted with AP photographer Eddie Adams' potent stills of the execution. The grim ironies of the scene were accentuated by the cultural significance of the weapon itself, a revolver, a somewhat archaic handgun, sim symbolic of the American West. He then gets to the actual issue of the comic, saying, Toward the end of the 1980s, however, the infamous execution got manipulated incredibly further actually shifting the role of the most heartless shooter, originally a South Vietnamese official, from the Vietnamese co communists to the pho photographers themselves. For example, the cover story of the November 1988 issue of the popular comic book The Nam portrays the photojournalists, both still photographers and TV cameramen, as the real enemies because they had placed the image on the quote-unquote front page of every newspaper in the States. The cover literally reverses the original image by showing the execution scene from the position Behind the participants, this offers a frontal view of the photographer whose deadly camera conceals his face and occupies the exact center of the picture. The prisoner appears merely as an arm, shoulder, and sliver of a body on the left. The only face shown belongs to the chief of the security police who displays the righteous, even heroic indignation that has led him to carry out this justifiable revenge against the treacherous actions of the, quote, Viet Cong pictured in the story. The climactic image is a full page in which the execution scene appears as a reflection in the gigantic lens of the camera above the leering mouth of the photographer, from which comes a bubble with his greedy words, keep shooting, just keep shooting. 
shooting a picture here has become synonymous with murder and treason. In the next panel, two GIs register their shock, not at the execution, but at a TV cameraman focusing on the dead body. Front page of every newspaper in the States. Geez. One can hardly imagine a more complete reversal of the acclaim accorded to Civil War photographers for bringing the reality of war and death home to the American people. Now, I think that Franklin is falling into the trap that many people tend to fall into when analyzing a medium such as comic books, especially series comics that have an ongoing narrative. That is, he takes the moment of the issue completely out of context without considering that this is the middle of a series that by that time, or by the time the essay was published, had a significant number of issues, and by the time the issue was published, well, it's still an ongoing narrative. To say that the media is a villain and that Lone is being glorified is a bit inaccurate here. Yes, the media is given negative attention, but this goes along with the way that the news was portrayed in previous issues, especially issue 15, where Ed Marks watches the news and is upset by all of the negativity he sees because it doesn't match up with what was going on over in Vietnam. So this has already been established. Plus, Phillips and Daniels seem uncomfortable with the situation. I mean, they're not exactly smiling. But even if you take Franklin, the professor of history, who is way more credentialed than I am, as the right word on this, you have to wonder what exactly Doug Murray is saying. Franklin seems to be saying that Murray thinks that the media somehow ruined the war for the American people, and that it because it brought the negative home, it didn't exactly paint things in a good light, and that led to the overall failure of the war. But I don't know if Murray's really saying that. Having Ed Marks get all upset over it made sense. Ed was a naive kid when he started his time in Vietnam. Phillips, who's more or less the main GI in this story, is way more hardened and way more cynical. In fact, he even points out how Westmoreland is obviously trying to spin things so the Tet Offensive doesn't sound as bad as it really is. He seems to see through everything on all sides, which is definitely not the point of view Franklin seems to be saying is being used here. My contention is that Murray doesn't see the media as doing some sort of noble duty. They're trying to get the story, the one that gets ratings, the one that sells papers, because that's what they do. And they just happen to be doing something that is somewhat the right thing which is showing the atrocity being committed in our own name because Lone is just as reprehensible. Like I said, Murray is trying to show as many different points of view as possible, even if it seems like the execution is being shoehorned into the issue. So I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'll talk about the historical context, letters, and ads. Trenis Magnus punches reality. Comics movies, and TV shows. Trenis Magnus punches reality. The People's Geeky Podcast. Trenis Magnus punches reality. Celebrating 50 ball-smashing episodes. Trenis Magnus punches reality. Episode 50, coming July 1st, 2014. Only at Two True Freaks I'm not kidding around either. If I ever find out my show's been syndicated on some other podcast network without my permission, I'll sue a motherfucker. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession. And least of all, an adventure. 
for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. The photo that is repeatedly referenced in this issue, as well as Franklin's essay that I read from, is one of the most famous of the Vietnam War. Snapped by Associated Press photographer Eddie Adams, it shows General Nguyen Ngoc Loan, who was the head of South Vietnam's police and intelligence, executing a prisoner in 1968. Loan has a revolver pointed at the prisoner's head and has fired through his right temple. The picture won Adams a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news photography and became one of the most iconic images of the war. According to his obituary in the New York Times, and Adams died in 2004 after a battle with ALS, quote, Mr. Adams' photo- photograph reinforced a widespread belief that the South Vietnamese and American military were doing more harm than good in trying to win the war against an indigenous insurgency in the North Vietnamese army that sponsored it. This interpretation long dismayed Mr. Adams, who accepted Brigadier General Lone's contention that the man he shot had just murdered a friend of his, a South Vietnamese army army colonel, as well as the colonel's wife and six children. How do you know you wouldn't have pulled the trigger yourself, Adams would later write in a commentary on the image. Later on in the obituary, Adams is quoted as saying, I always tell photographers that you never know who is looking at your pictures or how your pictures are going to affect other people's lives. I wasn't out to save the world, I was out to get a story. His relationship with the photograph was a little bit complicated, in fact. A quick glance at his Wikipedia page shows that he seemed reluctant to accept the fame he received as a result of that shot, and actually apologized to the general for the shame that that the photograph's notoriety brought to him and his family. The photograph's impact, however, cannot be denied. Like I said, it became iconic. It was one of the most widespread images from the war. It had a profound effect on the American public's opinion of the war between, because between that and other stories and footage coming out of the Tet Offensive, American support for Vietnam plummeted as 1968 began. So what was the Tet Offensive? I keep hearing that phrase over and over, and if you study anything about Vietnam, that's one of the events you're going to end up studying. Well, Tet is more or less the Vietnamese New Year. It highlights uh, as the highest of holidays in Vietnam, so much so that in previous years before this, before 1968, truces would be brokered between the two sides fighting for the war for the holiday. Granted, those truces were often broken, but not on the scale of what happened in 1968, when you had a massive wave of coordinated attacks by the Viet Cong on the United States and the South Vietnamese, one which took them completely by surprise. Now, the actual result of the Tet Offensive was a military loss for the communists, but the effect on the opinion and morale of the people of the United States, who were watching at home, was profound enough, especially since prior to this, the public had been led to believe that the communists weren't this coordinated. The attack on the embassy actually happened. It was actually filmed by a television crew. 
17 Viet Cong commandos took the American embassy before finally being defeated, just like we saw, but there was enough carnage on television to shock the American public. Prior to this, during this month, you have the beginning of the Battle of Quezon, which was a major battle during the war. First, you have Operation Niagara 1 on January 9th, which was a huge intelligence effort to map NVA positions in anticipation of a possible attack. And then on January 21st, you have Niagara 2, where the NVA begins a 77-day siege of Quezon, with the United States launching a massive aerial bombardment effort against the North Vietnamese, dropping a total of 110,000 tons of bombs over the course of the siege. So as the title of the story suggests, this really was the beginning of the end. Yes, militarily, the United States was actually in better shape than it seemed. But when it comes to war being fought, so to speak, on the home front... Most of the public begins to see a huge defeat on their hands and becomes increasingly dismayed with the way that things are going. Incoming this month, we have a letter from Sean McInnes of Fremont, California, who asks two questions. Uh, says, one, will we ever get a letter from Ed Marks? I think of, we've all grown attached to him and would like to see what his life is like after Nam. Two, what about Rob? I am, for one, curious to see how life was when he came back to the world? And three, did you find many people like Phillips in your tours? He seems like a good soldier, but why would he refuse to talk about his past? Is it for his own good or the good of his comrades? Doug replies, Ed and Rob will appear in issue 26 when we get an idea of what both of them are up to, along with the old top Ramnerain and a few other friends. As for Phillips, I knew a few like him in the war. They wanted their privacy for whatever reason, and like all Americans, they were entitled to that as long as it didn't hurt anybody else. Thanks for the interest in the letter. Justin Gunther really asks if uh, if Andy Clark's hands are really that big, and Doug says yes. There's a couple of letters about... A couple of people asking for marks again. Um, one guy who's like, you know, I... I saw films about the war. I used to collect superhero. I still collect superhero comics, but this is like the one non-superhero comic I collect. And uh, and then Clint S. Miller of Okalata, Ochalata, Oklahoma. I'm sure Sean Engel will um, correct me on the pronunciation. Writes in saying, "Dear sirs, this letter from Gary." Walker in issue number 17 could not have been better written. The Vietnam War was real. I was born in 70 during the war. My mother, a college student, gave me up for adoption. I do not know who my father was. I was born in a naval hospital in Oceanside, California, and I know my grandpa by birth was a Marine. I don't know whether or not he went to Vietnam, but I hope to find out. If he did go, I can only pray he came back alive. There are still approximately 2,500 missing and unaccounted for men in Vietnam. I wear an MIA POW bracelet in hopes that Sar- Staff Sergeant Erb- Albert W. Bush will return home alive. Those that are still living need the United States support. I would appreciate an issue on the side of the side of the war, one that is still happening. No Rambo rescue missions, just cold hard facts. Keep up the good work. Doug says. The MIA situation is one of the most frustrating and shameful sides of the whole war. Anything that can be done to help is both vital and noteworthy. And then he says, Okay, troops, before I give you our slang from this issue, I want to get, I just want to interject a little note. The Tet Offensive was, in fact, the beginning of the end of the Vietnam War. Its aftermath and the pictures from it convinced the American people that this war could not be won. And this story and the one in issue number 20, this says 26, but this is 25. I don't know if they printed the long letter. I have made every attempt to tell the story with historical accuracy. The Viet Cong Teo is a real person, one who escaped fighting and wrote a 
journal about his part in the in the attack. General Lone, Gen- Colonel Jacobson, and the photographers all are real people, and all are doing what they did in the actual conflict. This is the way it was. Enjoy and learn, Doug Murray. All right. Nam notes this time around, we don't have very many. We have Bien Hoa and Luc Bin, which are provinces in South Vietnam. Charlie, of course, is the enemy. Regulars, the regular army, in this case, the North Vietnamese army. Tansen Hut, the big airport air airbase serving Saigon, and Tet, the equivalent of our New Year, the most important holiday in Vietnam. And then we have ads this month. Uh, still have the G.I. Joe mail-away. Uh, look, mono wires, freedom stick wireless remote control, which probably never worked like you thought. Ooh, free with proofs of purchase. M&M's painter cap and M&M's custom design shirt, which if you put it on, you look like Super Dave Osborne. And you look like a total dork. And the way they have the kid illustrated with the painter's cap, it's like he bent the bill in the middle, so it's like, you know, a triangle instead of that sort of curve. Although lately the kids seem to be wearing them all flat, so, you know, what the, what the heck do I know? Ooh, Columbia House! 12 hits, 12 hot hits for a cool penny. Um, I did an entire episode last year of Pop Culture Affidavit on Columbia House. And here we've got cassettes or records, even though all the illustrations are actually, uh, oh, if you prefer, take any six CDs for a dollar. Um, and because that, that was the Columbia House with uh, like a lot of us uh, who grew up in the late 80s and early 90s um, was our kind of gateway to a lot of music. And that was my episode was about um, you can get this is 87, 88. So this is or so. So you can pick up. Skyscraper by David Lee Roth. You can get Michael Jackson's Bad, Terrence Trent Darby's Introducing the Hardline, In Excess's Kick, which is um, which I'll have to put in again. I don't have a copy. I've got a couple of songs um from and from what I remember, uh, was a great album. Springsteen's Tunnel of Love, which is uh, underrated, to be honest, and Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation, which had Ragdoll. And uh, George Michael's Faith, because, you know, I want your sex. Uh, what else do we have in here? Uh, White Snake. Oh, with Here I Go Again. Uh, the Billy Joel Russian live album. Ooh, you can get Led Zeppelin Four, Aqualung, The Pretender by Jackson Brown, The Unforgettable Fire by U2, The Joshua Tree, Wham's Make It Big. Johnny hates jazz. Ooh, this is a three-page ad <laughs> because then you have four more uh, CDs: Leonard Skinner Live, Southern by the Grace of God, Sade, Stronger Than Pride, Daryl Hall and John Oates. Ooh, yeah, which this is like the latter '80s stuff, and I don't remember much beyond like the first greatest hits album. Robert Plant, Now and Zen. What else we got on here? Julio Iglesias. Ooh. David Bowie. Hearts Bad Animals. Yeah. So interesting. This is I think this is the first time I've seen a Columbia House ad in a comic during doing this podcast. We have that Konami ad with whip, dribble, spin, etc. etc. Um, you know, a lot of these ads just repeated for months and months and months. Uh not seen an American comics ad yet. For what it's worth, you got a lot of uh, you got a lot of, um, of 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 story out of this comic. Bullpen bulletins, 
profile on Gregory Wright. Uh, the hype box has ooh, Punisher War Journal premieres this month, and the full order of the uh, the full origin of the Punisher from back in uh, back in 1988. Um, anything else interesting? Wolverine ongoing, Doctor Strange ongoing. They give props to Superman. Because this is Superman's 50th anniversary in 1988. And they say that they want to take their opportunity, this opportunity to thank, congratulate their friends at DC Comics and wish the granddaddy of all superheroes a happy 50th. And that Stan the Man will be attending the International Superman Exposition on June 18th in Cleveland, Ohio. May the battle for true justice in the American way never, ever end. Hmm. Danny Fingeroff got married. And Chris Claremont published First Flight, his first first science fiction novel uh it went into its third printing so uh he's doing pretty well um let's see what else we got we got the subscription ad that says there's something fishy going in on here and Nemo says you mean me and they said no we're talking about the great new subscription offer for marvel comics titles you can get 14 issues for the price of 12 and he says that's a whale of a sale the offers expires november 30th 1998 um, we have a word scramble involving Striped Chips Ahoy that if you actually used this, did this in the comic, you ruined the comic. And the Buck Rogers Battle for the 25th Century board game, which looks like a little bit like Risk, essentially, or Axis and Allies, like that sort of game. So that is it for ads. And that is it for this issue. And that is it for this episode. Uh, come back. I'm going to look at the nom number 25. And until then, thanks for listening. Take it easy. Oh, much too strong. I'm at it to you. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Chain of food.